Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Tonight on The Readout. A lot of threats, um, wishing death upon me, um, telling me that, you know, I'm, I'll be in jail with my mother and saying things like, be glad it's 2020 and not 1920. It was lies from Rudy Giuliani and others that led to those threats against Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. Today, Shea Moss took the stand in the trial to determine how much Giuliani will have to pay in damages. Also tonight, President Biden tells President Zelensky he will never walk away from Ukraine. But many Republicans are sure willing to walk away and give Putin a big victory. I'll talk to Senator Raphael Warnock about that and much more. Also tonight, Cassidy Hutchinson joins me on the danger that Donald Trump poses if he gets a second presidency. Plus, the fallout over congressional testimony of university presidents and why it's a disingenuous argument that this was all about anti-Semitism. But we begin tonight in the Trump world of alternative facts, where the twice impeached, four times indicted former president and his allies continue to believe that if they just say something enough times, then somehow, poof, it becomes true. Case in point. Rudy Giuliani, who was in the second day of his civil trial to determine the amount of damages he'll have to pay to two Georgia election workers he defamed after the 2020 election. Even though he's already been found liable for defamation, Giuliani has continued to claim that he was telling the truth. Whatever happened to them, which is it's unfortunate if other people overreacted, but everything I said about them is true. Do you regret what you did to sh- Ruby? Of course Ruby? I don't regret it. I told the truth. Wow, perhaps Rudy's own lawyer didn't get the memo about that alternative fact, considering that it directly contradicted what that lawyer was saying at court, calling the two election workers good people who did not deserve what happened to them. And today, one of those election workers, Shea Moss, provided dramatic testimony on how Giuliani's false allegations forever changed her life. Fighting back tears at several points during her testimony, Moss described the relentless harassment and fear of violence directed at her and her loved ones. Quote, I was afraid for my life. I literally felt like someone was going to come and attempt to hang me. And there's nothing that anyone would be able to do about it. Donald Trump also tried to create his own alternative fact today about why he declined to testify yesterday in his New York civil fraud trial. After claiming over the weekend that he had nothing more to say, Today, Trump posted that he did, in fact, want to testify, but could not do so fully because of the gag order in the case. Now, remember, the gag order in this case only prohibits Trump from making statements about the judge's law clerk who cannot defend herself. Why that was pivotal to Trump testifying is as confusing to me as why anyone paid money to attend Trump University. And today, Trump is also facing questions about one of his criminal trials, the classified documents case in Florida, which we all know he will never face as it is being overseen by the Trump-friendly judge Aileen Cannon. CNN is reporting on the repeated attempts by Trump and his associates to cozy up 
to a longtime former Mar-a-Lago employee who quit after the FBI searched the resort last summer and before charges against Trump were filed. According to CNN, this employee was also a witness to several of the episodes special counsel Jack Smith included in his federal criminal indictment. Quote, he had moved several boxes for Trump and was also privy to conversations referenced in the indictment between Trump and his two co-defendants. Mar-a-Lago property manager Carlos de Oliveira and Trump's body man, Walt Nada, putting the former employee in a unique group of Mar-a-Lago staffers who could be in a position to provide valuable information to investigators. The outreach included a direct call from Trump, as well as offers to pay for his legal representation, complimentary tickets to a golf tournament, and reminders that he could get his job back if he wanted it. Joining me now is Lisa Rubin, MSNBC legal analyst, and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor and MSNBC legal analyst. Thank you um, for being here, both of you. Here's the story, uh, the CNN story. It is, Lisa, quite a tale. And what struck me was the a sort of uh, persistence, let's just say, of Di Oliveira in particular in going at this employee multiple times, showing up at you know parties and events with them, inviting them to come back, to come back and work for Trump, and saying, no, 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 let what let you know people around Trump saying, let us get your lawyer. Is that witness intimidation? You know, Joy, that's a hard question to answer. It's certainly on the border of witness intimidation. The other thing that I think shouldn't be neglected here is that the person is indeed a witness. And when you compare CNN's reporting today with previous reporting by The New York Times in September about another former employee repeatedly contacted with respect to offers of attorneys, for example, or you even compare it to the indictment in this case where someone who goes by Trump employee five seems to have a lot in common with the subject of CNN's reporting— It's pretty clear that the person who is implicated in CNN's reporting is not just a casual witness, but somebody who might be at the very center of the case that the special counsel's office would hope to put on if and when this case goes to trial. Right. And and Glenn, I mean, because the thing is, I don't understand Walt Not I'll be honest with you. These are low-level employees, low-level people. I don't know how much he's paying them. But they seem to be proactively acting to try to make sure that everyone stays on side, that everyone stays in Trump's good graces and that they stay in the camp. I I don't see how that necessarily hurts Trump. But it seems to me that people like Walt Not are in so much legal jeopardy. You know, it's more likely he'll go to jail than Trump in this case. Can you make sense of them trying to seemingly pressure another witness to, I don't know, act in Trump's behalf the way they are? I can, Joy. When I handled large RICO cases in the courts of Washington, D.C., we had any number of defendants who were part of the criminal organization, the enterprise that we were prosecuting. And no matter what we tried to do, no matter how much we tried to appeal to you know, the very real probability that they might go to prison for the rest of their lives if they opted not to cooperate with the prosecutors and testify against the bigger fish, many of them continued to hold fast. In fact, Joyce, some of them walked into court and took what are called soldier pleas. A soldier (sighs) plea is somebody who is so entrenched and devoted to the criminal organization and the head of the criminal organization that they will plead guilty to every count in the indictment without any benefit because they're not willing to 
cross the boss. That is what it feels like is going on here with the Walt Naudas uh, and perhaps others who will forever remain loyal to Donald Trump. And that's fine because Jack Smith has enough other evidence to prove these charges beyond a reasonable doubt. Right. And that judge has no loyalty to them. She may try to stop Trump from going to trial, but she's not going to stop them. They'll go to prison. Um, let's go to Rudy Giuliani. Speaking of people who seem to be wanting to bring on more legal problems than they already had. Um, here's what Politico writes. They may have defamed them again. These uh, these these Shea Moss uh, and her mom. When the trial reconvened on Tuesday morning, an incredulous Judge House said the comments that he made saying, I didn't lie. I told the truth about these two women could support another defamation claim. I'm not sure how it's reconcilable. Giuliani's lawyer acknowledged this has taken a bit of a toll on him. He's almost 80 years old. There are health concerns, Mr. Giuliani. Um, so Lisa Rubin you're saying he's old and he has health concerns. I mean, younger than Joe Biden, he's younger than, you know, <laughs> you know. Is that, a, is that a way to get out of a defamation-free card? He's old and not well? No, particularly whereas <laughs> here, the liability has already been established. This is a trial, Joy, as you know, that's for damages only because Rudy Giuliani yeah. already has a liability judgment against him. But the other thing that I would add is continuing to defame someone after you've had that liability adjudicated, that can be part and parcel of a damages award, particularly a punitive damages award. So if you've been told you already defamed someone and you continue to spew the same lies, the yeah. court is fully entitled to consider that in awarding the quantum of punitive damages. Indeed, Donald Trump himself may face the same situation in the second E. Jean Carroll trial that right. opens in January. Yeah. And let me just read to you from The Washington Post uh, that the, the attacks on these election workers, many messages called Ruby Freeman and Shamos traitors. Others said they should be hanged from trees close enough to the U.S. Capitol for people to hear their next snap. Another message was from a person who just repeated the N word at least 11 times. It, it, it just it, the, the, the only argument that we're hearing from the other side, Glenn, is that it will ruin Giuliani financially if he gets a big fine. Again, so what? These women were subjected to death threats. Not only so what, but so be it. He should be financially ruined because I was taken aback, even knowing who Rudy Giuliani is and how he has behaved in recent years on the courthouse steps at the end of the uh, court session yesterday. He defamed them again. He said that, oh, no, it is true that they were involved in changing votes. His word. This is like somebody who is on trial for robbery, committing a robbery on his way into his trial. I mean, it is insane. And his lawyer may have said he's 80 and I can't control everything he does. But you know what? Rudy Giuliani can control what he does. He chooses not to. He doubles down on his racism and his defamation and putting these women's lives in jeopardy. And I would just press play on that clip from yesterday for this jury and say, yeah. ladies and gentlemen, in case you ever thought Rudy Giuliani would learn his lesson, watch what he said yesterday. As Lisa said, I think that is relevant to the, not only the, the defamation uh, issue yeah. generally, but to the damages. Let's go real quick to the D.C. case. There's so many cases, so little, little time. Uh, the special counsel is going to use Trump's phone. So his phone, I'm going to stay with you for a second, Glenn. The data from his phone could reveal day-to-day -day details of his final weeks in office, including his daily movements, his Twitter habits, and any aides who had access to his accounts and devices. If Trump didn't tweet, it's going to be wild himself. Does that help him in some way? Yeah, I mean, that is why, you know, you don't just rely on media accounts that Donald Trump tweeted, for example, come to D.C. on January 6th will be wild or mid attack on the Capitol that Donald Trump tweeted. Uh, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what he should have done. The message there, Joy, was clear. 
get him. And his foot soldiers erupted into chants of hang Mike Pence, which was kind of okay with Donald Trump, according to witnesses. So, yeah, we don't just rely on media accounts as prosecutors. We have to drill down. We have to get the data. We have to get the cell site information, which will tell us not precisely, but in a a certain area where the phone was at the time it was being used to post these inflammatory messages. So all of that has to be packaged up and presented to the jury during the course of the trial. Yeah. Whether was it in his tiny little fingers or not? Um, Let's talk about this uh, Supreme Court case, uh, which is going to be in some ways hell for these justices. It puts them right back in the center of politics, Lisa. They have to, you know, either way, there's going to be a lot of people mad about what they decide, whether he has absolute immunity and get away with this. Senate Democrats are now saying that Clarence Thomas specifically ought to recuse himself. That seems logical to me, given that his wife was one of the insurrectionists that was part of the plot. Um, Chances that he does it? No. Absolutely no. Clarence Thomas is unrepentant about his own ethical issues and problems. I don't believe that Clarence Thomas believes he has any trouble with respect to his wife. They believe that they have some separation here that the rest of us can't see. Yeah, they definitely believe they're above the law, Uh, but he's not above taking a few pricey gifts. He loves that. Uh, thank you, Lisa Rubin and Glenn Kirshner. Thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, former Trump White House aide and key January 6th committee witness Cassidy Hutchinson joins me to share her fears about a second Trump presidency. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Cassidy Hutchinson's damning testimony as the key witness to the House January 6th committee revealed a series of stunning insights into Donald Trump's actions as the attack unfolded and shocking details about the former president's indifference to the violence that day, including threats to his own vice president, Mike Pence. I remember Pat saying something to the effect of, Mark, we need to do something more. They're literally calling for the vice president to be effing hung. And Mark had responded something to the effect of, you heard him, Pat. He thinks Mike deserves it. He doesn't think they're doing anything wrong. Now, as Trump pursues a second presidency, Hutchinson is using her experience to sound the alarm about the former president. She calls an extreme threat to democracy. And joining me now is former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, author of the New York Times bestseller, Enough. Congratulations. Thank you. Troy. I Thank love that. I, I'm very glad it was a bestseller because it means that people actually care about your insights more than just your testimony. So congrats on that. Thank you. You're very you, you're very open in this book and you talk about your journey from being a committed supporter to being horrified by what's happening. So now as you look at what is still happening 
and Donald Trump saying things like he's going to be a dictator on day one. How do you experience that? And what are your biggest fears? Well, to start with that, you know, I, I want to be careful because I, I do agree. And I have been very vocal about talking about how if he is reelected, it is a step towards a, a dictatorship in yeah. the United States. Um, but since I have last discussed that, he has come out and almost made light of it. And I, yeah. I was on the inside. I do know how Donald Trump likes to message and he messages about things when he's afraid of them. He, I, I am spec, this is speculation, but I would, I'm very pressed to believe that he sees that this messaging is working, that people are believing it and it's reaching an audience, which is the right thing to do. We do need to sound the alarm bells mm-hmm. on this. We do need to bring attention to it, but we need to do it in a responsible way because if we don't, then he's going to continue making light of it mm-hmm. and amplifying this rhetoric when it's extremely dangerous. Everything that Trump says is extremely dangerous. He has said extremely dangerous things for years that have gotten people killed. Um, and as we reach this next election cycle, you know, I, I truly believe that if he is reelected, then the likelihood that this is the last election that we are voting under our Constitution is very, very likely. All of that being said, you know, Donald Trump has showed us who he is and he's told us who he is for a very long time. At the end of the administration, he talked about implementing Schedule F, which is essentially a program where he would be able to fire up to 50,000 civil mm-hmm. servants and replace them with loyalists. Right. If reports are accurate, there are also groups that are putting together databases mm-hmm. of Trump loyalists to backfill those positions. So Right then and there, we're already looking at a government that is going to be completely stacked with new government employees that aren't tenured and people that are inherently loyal to Donald Trump. That is not what our country is based upon. Now, that's one element of it. And then, you know, he's also facing 91 criminal indictments. Mm -hmm. He could still be under trial. The trial still could be underway in this next election cycle. Or they could be settled and his first act in office could be a self-pardon. Right. You know, so we're, we're looking at so many different angles of danger here. And I just think that the more that we talk about this, we, the more we amplify this, it's extremely important. But we also need to keep in mind that most Americans need to be educated on this and yep. to open up the conversation about what this actually means and how it does very closely re- resemble a dictatorship at this moment. And, and I mean, it's a really important question because the, the Everyone, you know, a lot of people watching the show sort of already believe that, right? They're already fearful of a, of a second Trump term. But there are a lot of people who aren't. And who felt, well, we, you know, we made it through the first term. They're really not afraid of having a second term. Um, Jamie Raskin um, gave testimony about this moment that, uh, that you talked about um, in your closed-door testimony about um, the kinds of people who were gathering inside of the Oval and ensuring that they left these are the kinds of people who would be. Let me just play it real quick. This is Jamie Raskin. Here are text messages sent by Cassidy Hutchinson during and after the meeting. As you can see, Ms. Hutchinson reported that the meeting in the West Wing was unhinged. The meeting finally broke up after midnight during the early morning of December 19. Cassidy Hutchinson captured the moment of Mark Meadows escorting Rudy Giuliani off the White House grounds to, quote, make sure he didn't wander back into the mansion. The very kinds of people who are being described as unhinged would be the administration. And I would anticipate that Donald Trump would probably release from prison people like Enrique Tarrio, 
people like members of the Proud Boys and Oath Keepers. They would be back on the streets. Is that something that you think about? And that's probably what would happen, no? Yeah, I I do agree with that. I agree that he would bring in people who are extremely loyal to him and people who are arguably dangerous people. The Enrique Terrios, the people that are associated with the Proud Boys and extremist groups, you know, I— I don't want to give them oxygen because they are just, yep. that's a, such a long conversation that we could have hopefully another day. <laughs> yeah. But there's no, absolutely no doubt in my mind that Donald Trump would bring in people that he knows are loyal to him and that will not say no to him. He will bring in people at a senior level, mid-level, and even entry-level employees who are not going to push back on him, who will not defect, who will not speak out, and who will not shed light on the dangers that Donald Trump and his administration poses. And just Branching off of that briefly, too, you know, as we look at this next election cycle, it's not guaranteed at this moment that he will be the nominee. We still have time, and there's a few mm-hmm. months until the primaries. However, we also have to think about when we are talking about the election, talking about what is happening in Congress. Yeah. We need to make sure that there are responsible people elected to Congress mm-hmm. because Congress holds the agenda. So if yeah. he succeeds and he is elected president and there is a Republican majority in either or both chambers, it's already filled with a bunch of members of Congress who are yes people to Trump. Sure. They would need to sustain the majority, which means that more would need to be elected. Right. We cannot be electing people who are dishonest, who do not stand for the Constitution, who do not stand for our rule of law, and will continue this momentum towards this dictatorship or this populist movement that Trump has latched onto. We yeah. need to return to normalcy, and we need to return to normal governing practices. That is excellent advice. Um, listen, sometimes you got to take advice from young people. You're a young person <laughs> that was inside, and you know this man, and you know these people. Cassie Hutchinson, thank you so much, and I'm glad you wrote this book, and I hope everyone who has not yet read it will read it. <laughs> thank, thank you. Sure. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course still ahead. Ukrainian President Zelensky visits the White House and Capitol Hill to drum up support for continued military aid amid new reports of the devastating impact the war is having on the Russian military. Senator Raphael Warnock joins me next to talk about that and a lot more. We'll be right back. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Millions of people across the globe are in the midst of celebrating various holidays during what feels like a dark period in many places. That leaves many faith leaders struggling to find the words for their Muslim, Jewish, and Christian congregants. In the occupied West Bank, Palestinian leaders decided to forego their annual Christmas festivities in solidarity with their brethren in Gaza, who are under constant bombardment. 
Meanwhile, millions of Jewish people are marking Hanukkah in the shadow of the October 7 attack and praying for peace for all of those affected. And here in Washington, Republicans, who often claim to be people of God and faith, have turned their backs on millions of Ukrainians in their time of need. Without supplemental funding, we're rapidly coming to an end of our ability to help Ukraine respond to the urgent operational demands that it has. Putin is banking on the United States failing to deliver for Ukraine. We must, we must, we must prove him wrong. As we approach Christmas on behalf of all our Ukrainian families, separated by war and all sons and daughters on the front, Ukraine's greatest wish is to near these wars victorious end. These are challenging times where faith and geopolitics are colliding. And it sure is helpful to have a pastor around, even better if they're also a senator. And joining me now is Senator and Reverend Raphael Warnock of Georgia, senior pastor at Dr. King's Church, Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. Uh, happy holidays in advance. Merry Christmas in advance. Happy holidays. Great to be with you. Thank you. It is good to you see, see you. You see something that's taking the preacher's voice, but I'll do my best. That's okay. Look, a preacher can always find their voice. That's one thing I know about a pastor. But let, let's talk about all of the. Uh, let's go through a few of the other things. I want to start with Ukraine. In the House, as well as some in the United States Senate, there is this resistance to providing funding for Ukraine, which is still suffering uh, this attack from Russia, trying to trade things like border, a border policy, border security for funding. Uh, J.D. Vance saying basically that Ukraine should cede land and cut a deal. What in the world is going on on the other side of the aisle? That's a very good question. I'll, I'll tell you that this is politics in the worst sense of the word. Uh, there is no replacement for American leadership in the world. Uh, I have uh, had occasion now on a few uh, opportunities to uh, hear President Zelensky, to meet him. And I think he's just a very impressive person who is standing up in a critical moment, not only for his country, but in terms of the world order. And um, it, it's unfortunate that I've got colleagues who are reducing such an important geopolitical crisis uh, to typical political horse trading. Uh, look, th there are issues at the border and they need to be addressed. I, for one, am open to any reasonable bipartisan proposal uh, that will get there on the way to what we really need is comprehensive immigration reform. But this is one of the most fraught issues in our political system. And so, unfortunately, not everybody, not all the Republicans, but on the other side, you have some Republicans who are not willing to support Ukraine no matter what. Yeah. And so they're just using this issue of the border, which is very serious, uh, in the most uh, cynical uh, way. I hope that at the end of the day, cooler heads will prevail. Um, certainly, we don't want to see American soldiers on the ground uh, as Putin continues his aggressive move across Europe. I, I think uh, it, it, it only makes sense for us to support our friends in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, you have T uh, Tuberville, you know, essentially saying, you know, well, they can't, you're not going to go across Europe. Um, you know, they can't even get through Ukraine. Now, but wait, they, literally in Russia, there's, they're bragging uh, on Russian television about we're, we're going to go if, all the way to Poland. If, if anything, the Ukrainians have exceeded expectations. Absolutely. Uh, I think when this, when, when the prospect of all of this began to unfold, the sense was that uh, Putin would just roll over Ukraine right. in no time flat. Uh, but these folks are standing up with a kind of valiant spirit and mm -hmm. courage and patriotism. And again, I just emphasize 
that this is about American national security. We still are members of NATO. Right. I know that there are some folk out there who, who think we ought not be members of NATO, but we're right. members of NATO. Yeah. It's part of uh, uh, the order that has kept us safe over the last several decades. And I would much rather uh, provide some American resources today right. than have to shed American blood Indeed. Uh, in the future. Particularly when Russia is you know, detaining Alexei Navalny. We, we don't know where he is. He's missing. But I, I want to go into another area, which is the other part of the funding uh, that the administration is trying to get, and that is toward Israel. Um, the administration recently bypassed the, the Congress, including the United States Senate, um, and is approving an order to send tank ammunition. This is while there's a lot of protests against what's happening in Gaza. Even President Biden today uh, conceded that there's too many casualties and that Israel risks losing global support because of the number of deaths. It's 18,000 or more. What do you make of the administration sticking to this policy to the point where they would bypass Congress to send more ammunition to be used against Gaza? I have to tell you that as a pastor, uh, uh, my heart goes out. Uh, to the folks who are suffering in that part of the world. First of all, we saw a heinous and despicable attack uh, on the people of Israel on October 7th. Rape used as a weapon of war. Children and babies uh, massacred in ways that bring terrible remembrances of the Holocaust and Jewish suffering. Uh, But Palestinian babies and children are every bit as valuable as Jewish and Israeli children and babies. And uh, somehow I hope that we can get to peace, uh, which is why I was part of uh, those uh, legislators who called for humanitarian pauses. Do you support uh, a, a full we, ceasefire? Well, we're seeing terrible devastation right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll tell you that way too many civilians have died. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I support getting the people of Gaza the uh, resources that they need. And ultimately, we've got to get to a two-state solution. That's the only way to have a secure Israel living in peace alongside its neighbor. And just very quickly, a full ceasefire, are you in favor of that as well, Dick I, Durbin I is? I don't know that calling for a ceasefire gets us one. Mm-hmm. What I want to see is peace. Right. Okay, let's let's talk about some domestic issues as well. Um, you are seeing a lot of sort of anger over the economy. Um, there is a poll that shows something like 20 percent of African-American voters are saying they would stay home if it's a Biden versus Trump rematch. Uh, there is some rumbling that in the African-American community, including on issues like Gaza, there is some pulling away from Joe Biden. Now, there are some positive things. You were involved in one of them, getting insulin prices down, getting health care costs down. So there have been some positive economic things. But what do you make of the sort of anxiety and the fracturing among the the Democratic base? Well, first of all, I I think um, we are living in really tough times. We went through three years of a pandemic that in some ways we're still digging ourselves out of. Think about a a million, the loss of a million Americans alone uh, through this crisis. I think that there is, Joy, a kind of low uh, grade fever that the whole country has. I I think that we have been traumatized in ways that we won't fully account for until years later. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of that, uh, people are concerned about their everyday uh, needs, which is why I've been focused on lowering the cost of prescription drugs. I got uh, an insulin cap to $35 a month for out-of-pocket costs for seniors. And now I see a bipartisan path for getting that done for people who have insurance, people who don't have insurance. Uh, I think too often our politics has become about the politicians. Mm-hmm. Who's up? Who's down? How are they showing up in the polls? Who's in? Who's out? I think the American people often are saying, who cares? And maybe that's what's reflected in the polls. So 
you know, the pundits will talk. We're, we're a year out from the election. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think what's important is to center the concerns of ordinary people who right now need child care as we approach this child care crisis, uh, who need <clears throat> to not have to choose between buying prescription drugs and buying food, and who are concerned about the safety of their children. Uh, I'm a dad, and we shouldn't have to worry when we drop our kids off at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning. We might not pick them up at 3 o'clock. Uh, because we've refused to do what we can do in this country to address the issue of gun violence. And so I'm focused on centering the people. And I think if you center the people, uh, that will be reflected in how the people show up a year mm-hmm. from now. And uh, very quickly, your prediction. So you, do you think that Joe Biden is in a position to win reelection? Oh, absolutely. OK. And you're confident that he'll win Georgia? <laughs> Listen, uh, I, I'm a witness that you, you should sleep on Georgia. <laughs> Firm but fair. Uh, <laughs> Senator and Reverend uh, Raphael Warnock, it is always good to see you. Good to see you. Thank you very much. And coming up, university presidents grapple with the fallout from their appearance on Capitol Hill last week. What the fight over who kept their jobs and who didn't tells us about anti-Semitism, campus culture, and the right's embrace of cancel culture. When the reality continues after this. Ivy League presidents are facing backlash over their reaction to on-campus anti-Semitism, or in the minds of some of their critics, the lack thereof. Last week, University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill, Harvard President Claudine Gay, and MIT President Sally Kornbluth were grilled over how their institutions responded to the rise in anti-Jewish hate since October 7th. Their carefully worded responses faced sharp criticism from lawmakers as well as the White House. After intense pressure from donors, politicians, and alumni, Penn President Liz McGill resigned after critics blasted her testimony, claiming she appeared to evade a question posed as a hypothetical of whether students who call for the genocide of Jews should be punished. Now, mind you, the questioner was Republican reborn MAGA Congresswoman Elise Stefanik of New York, a Harvard alum, and she presented no evidence that such calls for genocide had actually happened. But the answers from McGill and the other college presidents could best be described as academic and legalistic. And that became a huge score for the congresswoman and a potentially job-threatening problem for the presidents. And while McGill did indeed lose her job over at Cambridge, Harvard's governing board is backing its president, Claudine Gay. MIT's governing board is also standing by its president, Sally Kornbluth. But that's not the only noticeable shift in the fallout. Over the weekend, Saturday Night Live spoofed the hearing featuring Chloe Trost playing Stefanik. Anti-Semitism, yay or nay? I'm sorry, what? Yes or no is calling for the genocide of Jews against the Code of Conduct for Harvard. Well, it depends on the context. (gasps) What? That can't be your answer. I am here today because hate speech has no place on college campuses. Hate speech belongs in Congress, on Elon Musk's Twitter, in private dinners with my donors, and in public speeches by my work husband, Donald Trump. (laughs) Ding. But it's not just jokes. People are waking up to the fact that this attack on university presidents, for many on the right, is not actually about anti-Semitism. It's about the same old stuff we've seen in their fake CRT and book banning wars. It's the latest attack on wokeness on college campuses. The Murdoch-owned Wall Street Journal editorial board wrote a piece ostensibly about protecting Jewish students on campus. But then they gave away the game. 
calling anti-Semitism, by which it appeared to mean anti-Israel sentiment, just one example of a much deeper rot on campus. The deeper problem, the one that requires urgent attention, the Wall Street Journal says, is the, quote, anti-American, anti-Western instruction that dominates so many campuses, saying that these schools won't root out the DEI policies that use race, gender, and sexuality as political weapons to enforce intellectual conformity, dictate tenure decisions, and punish dissenters. The article also took issue with Harvard's Title IX training that says using the wrong pronouns qualifies as abuse. Oh, and let's not forget who these people are, the Republicans, that is. Their unchallenged leader, Donald Trump, has a long history with anti-Semitic tropes. They're down with Elon Musk and Mr. White genocide caused by Jewish Marxist Tucker Carlson. It's the culture war stuff. That's what this is really about. Liz McGill, the former Penn president, was a constitutional law scholar who clerked for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She took over as Penn's president only last July. Like most university campuses, Penn is entangled in the Republican anti-woke crusade to eliminate diversity programs, affirmative action, pronouns, trans people in sports, basically anything that doesn't fall in line with their narrow view of the world. Conservatives have been after McGill for a while, especially since transgender swimmer Leah Thomas switched from the men's varsity team at Penn to the women's team and won the NCAA 500-yard freestyle race. The school then nominated her for NCAA Female Athlete of the Year. Back in September, before the Hamas attack, Penn donors were already calling on McGill to resign over a Palestine Rights Literature Festival that took place on campus. Critics said the festival included speakers with a history of making anti-Semitic statements, but organizers and attendees rejected that claim. The ire against McGill isn't new. And there is a genuine debate going on in this country over whether opposing Israel or supporting Palestinians is itself anti-Semitism. But you know who's especially disingenuous? Moderate to MAGA Elise Stefanik, who again is a Trump supporter. Make it make sense. Up next, the outrage at Harvard, Penn, and MIT and its links to our creeping authoritarianism. I am asking specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. And that was the moment that ended Liz McGill's tenure as president of the University of Pennsylvania. McGill resigned just days after her congressional testimony on anti-Semitism drew fierce backlash from students, faculty, and especially donors. Joining me now is David Rothkopf, columnist for The Daily Beast and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Uh, David, thank you for being here. Uh, In your view, you've written a column about the disingenuousness of the attack on these presidents. Why, in your view, would that not be a fireable offense to answer in that way? Well, first of all, context does matter. Some No one was calling for genocide against the Jews. Some people were uh, criticizing uh, the policies of the government of Israel. Other people were calling for a Palestinian state that was contiguous between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Now, in some contexts, doing things like that might be anti-Semitic. In some contexts, it might be hate speech. But in others, in a seminar discussing the origins, for example, of, of, of the current Israel-Palestine situation, 
it's not hate speech. And and so her answer was right. Um, but the real problem that we have here is not just that her answer was correct. It's that the person who was posing this hypothetical question is somebody who has supported replacement theory, has supported a president who is the one who said when there were marchers in Charlottesville who were saying Jews will not replace us, he said there were very good people there. He, she comes from a party that supports anti-Semitic tropes like uh, the, the George Soros attacks that you hear so much of. And so you got to ask yourself, why is this person whose party has so many anti-Semitic subtexts saying that she is, you know, taking this stand. And the answer is they want to be able to bully people into fewer protections, not more. They don't believe in Islamophobia. They don't believe that people who are gay uh, or who are lesbian or who have other alternative lifestyle choices should be uh, granted safe spaces on campuses. And what they want to do is they want to bully that away or join up with donors and bully that away. And it's a good thing that the trustees at Harvard and at MIT rejected this effort and defended their presidents whose stances were actually exactly right. Right. I mean, and, and at Harvard, you know, literally, it, uh, Claudine Gay had the backing of Lawrence Tribe and, uh, you know, Jason Furman, who's the economics professor, former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Pulitzer Prize winner, Annette Gordon-Reed. You could go on and on and on. People really lined up behind her to make sure she was protected. What does it say about the status of our sort of culture that you that a bunch of donors could line up and decide that they already wanted this UPenn president out anyway because they were mad about Leah Thomas or they were mad about DEI and evict her essentially from her job. Well, donors have always had disproportionate power at universities, but there has always been an understanding that the academic leadership there would have enough independence to guarantee uh, freedom of ideas to set rules that ensured that the academic discourse would be open and constructive. Uh, and all that was thrown out the window in the heat of the moment. Uh, and that's what we have to worry about. You know, we live in a time with social media uh, where uh, it's possible for uh, feelings to spin out of control, public outcries to spin up. Uh, and that can lead in a moment to things like what happened at Penn with the firing of a woman who is an extremely distinguished lawyer, uh, a distinguished academic who did not deserve this fate. And, and to go back to your original point, I mean, it is very clear, and the Wall Street Journal just kind of admitted it, right, that the, what they really want is to reset universities, and they really want to do the same thing with K-12 education, to what they call classern, classic Western philosophy, which lauds the founders, which lauds, you know, sort of the old system of, you know, the dominance of, of, of their group of white Americans and of men, and that doesn't have all this messy stuff about race in it and all this messy stuff about LGBTQ. They just want back what you would learn in 1960. And that seems to be the bottom line, right? Yeah, they want to sing from the white supremacist, supremacist hymnal. Uh, and we know what it looks like. It looks like Florida. It looks like a, yes. a state where you can't teach history, where you can't say the word gay in the classroom, where universities don't guarantee protections to professors who teach those things, uh, where academic freedom is getting more and more constricted. And I think the thing we have to be aware of is that 
if Donald Trump is elected president, we're going to see more of this. We are going to see fewer freedoms on campus, fewer, less freedom of speech, fewer protections of people, the precise opposite of what they say they're fighting for. Yeah, indeed. And that is the warning, I think, that people need to have and really need to understand that this is political because the other side thing that they want is to sort of marshal people who wouldn't ordinarily vote for Republicans and people like Trump into their camp. And they think they can do it this way. David Rothkopf, your piece is excellent. Hope everyone checks it out. Thank you so much for being here. And that is tonight's readout. MSNBC is going to be live here all night. Today's news requires more facts. Palestinians and Israelis are blaming each other for the tragedy that has inflamed the region. More analysis. Most of the states with the worst rates of gun deaths are ones where Republicans control the state government. And more perspective. This is not just about women and pregnant people in Texas. This is about people across this country. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more.